Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North, the Andrew Lawton Show on this Tuesday, September 19th. It is the end of an era, and I am telling you this era is not a particularly big one. It just means this is the first time I had to like dig to the back of the closet and pull out the sweater because it was just so darn cold, and now I have to just lament that summer is over. Now, if you're in Alberta, you've been like wearing your sweater since like August 4th already, so you're you're already on the ball, unlike us uh, Easterners, who, uh, despite having to deal with terrible governments, uh, do a little bit better on the weather than our friends out in Alberta and other parts of Western Canada do. But nevertheless, whether you are sweatered or t-shirted or uh, perhaps just lying around in the nude, as many people enjoy taking in my podcast, they may not. Don't actually trust me on that. I welcome you very much to the show here. Going to talk a little bit later on about firearms and the fact that this uh, sweeping ban on guns, assault rifles, as the Trudeau government said in May 2020, that they said was so important because they needed to get these dangerous guns that were killing people left, right, and center off the street. Uh, That has now resulted in an amnesty that has gone on well over three years. That amnesty period is ending in October, in just about five, six weeks' time. And still this uh, vaunted and announced buyback program that the government has promised does not exist. So we'll talk about that with our friend at the CCC. uh, I added like an extra C there, uh, CCFR Rod Giltaka. But uh, the big story that I wanted to lead off on is India and Justin Trudeau's bombshell accusation against the Indian government. Let's take a listen here. How to speak with all Canadians. Over the past number of weeks, Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijar. Canada is a rule of law country. The protection of our citizens and defence of our sovereignty are fundamental. Our top priorities have therefore been, one, that our law enforcement and security agencies ensure the continued safety of all Canadians, and two, that all steps be taken to hold perpetrators of this murder to account. It's a very explosive accusation and one that puts a bit of a different light on the stories we discussed last week about Justin Trudeau's rather chilly reception in New Delhi for the G20 summit. When you may recall, I shared a video of Modi's uh, reception of the various G20 leaders, the dignitaries, and I noticed that Justin Trudeau was the only leader present for that who had been excluded, who had been left out. Now, it isn't all that surprising when you learn that behind closed doors, Justin Trudeau was going to the Indian government and saying, uh, you guys killed a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil, you broke international law, and we have had weeks of intelligence agencies working this up. Now, as it stands, Justin Trudeau has not provided any inkling of what that evidence is. He's made the allegation. Uh, Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, seemed to yesterday take it at face value and said in the House of Commons that uh, this is outrageous. It's a violation of Canada's sovereignty. And I agree. If a foreign government, an ally or otherwise, but certainly an ally, were to execute on Canadian soil a Canadian citizen or execute anyone on Canadian soil, that would be a big problem. 
But we're talking about a way that this allegation has been made that is by its nature explosive, that does jeopardize the already strained Canada-India relationship. Now, you may say India's own conduct, if the allegations are true, did its part to jeopardize that. Right now, we've seen the usual diplomatic uh, expulsions taking place. Canada expelled an Indian diplomat yesterday, and India expelled a Canadian diplomat today. But we're still not having the opportunity to hear what the evidence or intelligence was that formed the basis of this. Now, I want to play a different clip. This is from Justin Trudeau today. And it's interesting how there's been, I don't want to say a walk back, but a bit of a different tone to his comments, even just 24 hours after first lobbing this grenade. That is so important today uh, is that India and the government of India takes seriously uh, this matter. Uh, it is extremely serious and it has uh, far-reaching consequences in international law and otherwise. For Canada, as I said yesterday, we're going to remain calm, we're going to remain grounded in our democratic principles and values, and we're going to follow the evidence and make sure uh, that the work is done to hold people... Why did you go public with this now? Um, over the course of the summer, uh, we have been uh, working closely with our intelligence agencies um, who are uh, moving forward in their analysis. We wanted to make sure uh, that we had uh, solid grounding in uh, understanding what was going on in analysis and indeed in facts. We wanted to make sure we were taking the time uh, to talk with our allies, to share what we knew. We wanted to make sure that we fully shared with the government of India uh, the seriousness and the depths of our uh, preoccupations and indeed conclusions. Uh, but. Uh, Canadians have a right to know and uh, need to know when things are, are going on like this. And that's uh, why we made the decision uh, to do this. So that response right there is a wee bit different. He's now talking about following the evidence. He's talking about it as though there's an ongoing investigation that they're trying to get to the bottom of. They're still trying to figure it out. They're, you know, working up the leads and, and all of that. But they're talking about it as though this is still very much a live issue and not a settled one. Now, uh, that is not the way that... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Apparently, there's an audio issue here I have to uh, resolve. You'll uh, bear with me. We're... Uh, oh, now we're changing the camera, too. We're having all sorts of technical fun today. There we go. My apologies about... I don't know what happened. We used this system, and we thought things were working, and they appear to be uh, now resolved. But in any event, uh, one thing that I was going to bring up there is that we have... It's not resolved now. Okay, well, we'll uh, we'll hopefully get to the bottom of that. But I, I'm going to, in the meantime, while we sort this out, play a clip of Pierre Polyev's response to this. His response, uh, which not the one he gave yesterday in the House of Commons, but the response that he gave today when he addressed reporters this morning on Parliament Hill. India, does Canada need to change its relationship with India in light of the intelligence the Prime Minister shared yesterday? I think the Prime Minister needs to come clean with all the facts. We need to know all the evidence possible so that Canadians can make judgments on that. They just expelled an Indian diplomat. Should they do more in response to this news? I think we need to see more facts. Um, the, the Prime Minister hasn't provided any facts. Uh, he, uh, he provided a statement, um, and I will just emphasize that he, he didn't tell me any more in private than he told Canadians in public, so we want to see more information. What is the risk if he doesn't provide more information or these allegations are found somehow to be untrue or uncredible? 
what is the risk? Real. But what specific yeah. information, what specific facts do you think Canadians and yourself need to know in this situation? We need to have uh, the evidence that drew the, that allowed the prime minister to come to the conclusions he made yesterday. Do you agree with the government's decision to go public with the intelligence? And if so, why? Sorry, I didn't hear. Do you agree with the government's decision to go public with the intelligence? And if so, why? I would I would have to have more uh, evidence to make a, a judgment on that. I do find it interesting that he knew about vast foreign interference by Beijing for many years, at the same time as Beijing had kept two Canadian citizens hostage, and he said nothing, and he did nothing. Just very, very interesting that, that that was the approach he took in that case. So again, a little bit more subdued than what we heard yesterday. He's not uh, disputing that uh, the allegation may be true or is plausible. He's saying, look, Justin Trudeau made the allegation. He needs to, in Polyev's words, come clean on the evidence. I, I want to welcome into this show an expert on uh, Indian politics and uh, a wonderful contributor to True North, host of the Rupa Subramanya show, the aptly named Rupa Subramanya. Rupa, it's good to talk to you on this. I, I mean, obviously the domestic politics in India are far more complex than we can delve into on this show. And I, I know that diaspora politics in Canada, which has multiculturalism as its official mandate, uh, tend to seep into our affairs here. But, but at its core, I mean, an, al an allegation of this nature without accompanying evidence is a huge problem. Um, absolutely, Andrew. And the manner in which these allegations were made were rather dramatic. Uh, you know, in the House of Commons, uh, uh, the Prime Minister uh, makes these allegations against uh, an ally. Um, you know, this is the kind of um, uh, treatment that you would, uh, you, this is how you treat a tin pot dictatorship like North Korea, not an ally. And as I've been uh, commenting on uh, X or Twitter, whatever it's called right now, um, that, uh, you know, there were ways in which uh, Justin Trudeau could have handled this. He could have handled this more diplomatically. Um, you know, there's all kinds of uh, private back channel talks. He could have, uh, I I, I think he raised this with Modi at the uh, at the G20 summit last week, but you know there's there's a lot more that could have been, that could have been done, uh, but instead uh, you know he just uh, really just um, you know launched these allegations in this very dramatic manner, um, alienating an ally. I mean where the relationship was already on the you know on mm -hmm. on the brink, and now it's really like I don't even know how we recover from this. Well, far be it for me to give Justin Trudeau with his track record on, on India and on foreign policy in general the benefit of the doubt. But but if he did raise this with Modi, he did raise it directly, he raised it with Indian officials, and they were not getting any response or any pushback or any cooperation, what is the right way of dealing with it? Well, as I mentioned, I mean, there's lots that a lot that could have that could have been done. He could have uh, continued with these uh, w with these talks. He could have uh, uh, continued engaging with his uh, with Modi and 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 the officials uh, in, um, in 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 foreign affairs uh, or global affairs. Could have uh, reached out to their counterparts at, uh, in India the, uh, at their foreign ministry. The point is, Andrew. Um, you know, if, if 
this this intelligence, if it if it is credible, there's a way of working with an ally, um, you know, on this. I mean, it's also in Canada's interest to 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 be able to um, 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 uh, identify um, uh, potential terrorists. Uh, uh, you know, let's let's not forget, and a lot of Canadians forget this. One of the worst terrorist attacks on Canada was the Air India bombing of mm-hmm. 1987. Uh, three, more than 300 people died in that uh, bombing, and most of them were Canadians. Um, and that was perpetrated by Khalistani separatists uh, living right here in Canada. So uh, we, we've kind of normalized the Khalistan separatist movement, which is which India continues to treat treat the Khalistan separatist movement as a serious security threat. We've unfortunately in Canada not taken it very seriously, but for India, it's a very serious issue. Of course, I mean, you know, you know, one doesn't want to excuse extrajudicial killings. I absolutely abhor them. Um, and, you know, nothing can justify that. But, you know, the point is that, um, you know, we've come to this point where India, you know, ha- actually did uh, when Justin Trudeau visited India in 2018. Uh, I believe the uh, then chief minister of the state of Punjab um, gave a list of uh, 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 you know people that uh, India was concerned about. The, the, these were uh, uh, you know some uh, and that included uh, Hardeep Singh uh, Nijar. And and this this list was given to uh, Justin Trudeau by an opposition leader uh, by 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 not by not. Uh, a member of the ruling party. It was uh, given to um, uh, Justin Trudeau by a member of uh, the Congress party, uh, which is, you know, which is opposed to the current ruling party. So the point is that in India, across political lines, across uh, partisan and ideological lines, the Khalistan separatist movement is considered a serious security threat. And it's been, um, you know, a longstanding issue with Canada that Canada just doesn't take this seriously. I, I share, by the way, your contempt for extrajudicial actions and extrajudicial killings. So I don't want any one of the, you know, people that are out there that just want to, you know, crap on this show and True North and you and I to just say, oh, they're defending it. It's not actually that. I'm defending here due process. And, and when you bring up uh, India's attempts to have these issues brought up with Trudeau in the past, it's worth noting on that 2018 trip that uh, Trudeau literally brought along in his delegation a man who had been convicted of the attempted assassination of Ujjal Dosanjh, a former liberal uh, health minister and, and former BC premier. Again, the exact type of person that India yeah. is here saying, hey, you've got this problem, we'd like to help you, that Canada was not dealing with. Absolutely. And let's take uh, Hardeep Singh uh, Nijar. Uh, now, you know, I, I didn't know these details about him till you know, I began reading about him yesterday. Um, and so apparently he comes to uh, Canada on a false pretext and a false passport. Um, he applies to become a refugee and the uh, refugee panel rules that his story of uh, being tortured in India by Indian police um, and experiencing brutality at their hands was completely fabricated. Uh, so they reject his application. Uh, and then he, um, um, I, I think he makes a couple of attempts at uh, trying to remain in Canada, but he gets rejected. He marries a woman in BC, uh, and the immigration panel once again rules that he, you know, this is a marriage of convenience, so they reject his application. Uh, but he eventually goes on to become a citizen in 2015. Um, yeah. By the way, I mean, there were also reports that he was on uh, a no fly list. Uh, so, you know, 
it, it's it, it's mind boggling to me, you know, as an immigrant who's been here since the late 90s. Um, you know, I came here as a young person and just the just just how hard I had to work to 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 remain in Canada, to be in, you know, in a country that I love so much. Uh, but, you know, uh, whereas someone like Hardeep Singh Nijar, you know, he finds himself in all of these situations. But, uh, but he's a Canadian citizen. Uh, it's it's just mind boggling, you know, what, what exactly happened there? Um, and my sense is that reading between the lines, you know, when I hear Melanie Jolie talking about, uh, you know, the, the, this issue, and um, and I saw a tweet by Mark Miller, you know, they're they're actually trying to portray this guy as some kind of a saint, and 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 he wasn't. And I have no reason to uh, dispute, um, you know, uh, you know. F- concerns that India had on this guy that, you know, in, I, I have no reasons to disbelieve Indian intelligence on this person. I, you know, I, 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 but I have no reasons to disbelieve the CSIS allegations that, you know, that, that there were some high, uh, you know, some agents of India who may have been responsible for this. But at this point, these are just allegations. Where is the mm-hmm. proof? You know, you're uh, um, jeopardizing a very important bilateral relationship. Keep in mind that India is seen as a uh, counterweight to China, and you have all of these major powers like the US, the UK, Australia courting India in a really big way. Uh, but, uh, w- w- you know, Justin Trudeau has been doing the opposite since his um, failed uh, India trip in 2018. And since then, there's been a complete deterioration in, in the bilateral ties. Uh, remember, Andrew, uh, back in December 2020, when the farmers' protests um was happening in India where, you know, there was a similar tactic to the Freedom Convoy protests where uh, uh, tractors and trailers just blocked like highways and uh, and, and, and the city of, De- mm-hmm. the capital city of Delhi. Trudeau actually uh, condemned the Indian government. And, you know, and that was, you know, that was, the Indians did not take that. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, imagine if roles were reversed and Modi was out there talking about the Emergencies Act to rein in the Freedom Convoy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he would say, You're, that's domestic meddling, get out of our backyard. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think Modi even like weighed in on the Freedom Convoy. But, you know, the hypocrisy of it was just astounding. But again, he was he was really playing to the Sikh diaspora here. Um, You know, they are an important constituency. My point is, this is just uh, absolutely mind boggling. It's diabolical. You you're uh, risking jeopardizing a very, very important bilateral relationship when the rest of the world is like knocking on India's door. uh, And here you are making these serious allegations. Uh, And 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 now today, as you as you as you played that clip early er, earlier, um, he's he's kind of climbing down from what he said yesterday. Yeah, and I, I should just say here, I mean, in international relationships, there's a term called the realpolitik, which is to basically discuss the political landscape as the world is, not in this idealistic way you want the world to be. And this means that often when you're picking your friends and allies, you aren't looking for perfect people. You're looking for people that you need in a particular situation, which is why the West gets along with Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia is a necessary counterbalance to Iran. Uh, India is a, a very interesting country because... It, geopolitically, internationally, it's not, 
I'm, I'm being simplistic here, but it, it's not particularly ideological in the sense that they'll work with whoever it's in their best interest to work with, which means India is available as a partner for China or Russia or the United States or Canada. And I think uh, to have a, a country with a billion people, with the English language, with a democracy, with a rule of law, uh, not as our ally is a profound tactical and moral failure. But uh, economically, it, it's an incredibly important relationship. And if we do distance ourselves from this, it is going to be to the benefit of China, for example. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, speaking of real politic, I mean, I was just, uh, um, uh, I just saw this tweet um, that the the U.S. has actually been very, very uh, r- reticent about, uh, um, you know, about uh, condemning, um, uh, of, of, of uh, taking Canada's side in this because... Uh, same as the U.K., just uh, within yes, the last it, hour, they've said yeah, we're absolutely. not getting into this. Absolutely. The, the, the response from um, Canada's allies um, has been very lukewarm and tepid. So you really have to wonder what was Justin Trudeau thinking in making these allegations? Uh, did he seriously think that the U.S.? Uh, you know, I have a million problems with the Biden administration, but I know one thing for sure. Um, you know, whether it was Trump or Biden, there's been a continuity in their Indo-Pacific policy. And, uh, and you know, and they, and they both recognize uh, that India is an important player in, in, as a counterweight to China. So, um, you know, you really have to wonder, like in making these allegations, did he think that he would have all of these countries on Canada's side and condemn India? Uh, you know, who's who's advising him? You know, who's advising him on India? Well, I mean, that's an important question that I'd love to hear the answer to, which is what, if any, the discussions were between Canada and everyone else at the Five Eyes table. I mean, when he sat down, assuming he did, and I certainly hope he did, and presented it to the UK and Australia and New Zealand and the US, how did they respond? And and did he think that they were going to fall in line? Did they warn him against going down this road? I don't know. And, and a part of it is that it's incredibly difficult to, to really ascertain any aspect of this without knowing what the intelligence is. Because Justin Trudeau did not say that there are people that may have ties to the Indian government. He said the Indian government. He specifically said they were responsible here. Now that, to the average person, is drawing a direct line between the killing of this man, of Hardeep Singh Nijal, and Modi himself, or people at the higher levels. And that is a huge allegation. And uh, when you look at India's response to this, they didn't do the whole Saudi Arabia thing of, oh, well, we're, we're going to look into it, and oh, maybe someone down the road. They're saying, no, this is absolutely patently untrue. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Look, I mean, I, you know, these are allegations until um, someone actually tells us, you know, gives us more evidence. And I think Pierre Polyevre um, um, made a statement to that effect this morning. Um, these are very serious allegations. And, uh, you know, Trudeau this morning, uh, you know, I, I sensed, sensed a climb down with Pierre Polyevre, uh, you know, he, he, he was basically buying Trudeau's uh, story yesterday. And this morning, he was also asking for more questions. Uh, you know, where's the evidence? You know, how did you tie this to the Indian government? Um, you know, whether the Indian government did this or not, I mean, if they did this, I mean, it's absolutely, you know, you know, you, you, no uncertain terms, you must, you know, you, you must oppose it. Um, and I say this as, as, a, as, as someone who uh, comes from India originally, um, you know, there's no room for this kind of extra, uh, you know, there's no justification for this kind of extrajudicial uh, uh, operation. Um, but having said that, um, you know, where exactly is the evidence?
Yeah, very well said. I know we'll continue on this as I expect you will as well. Rupa Subramanya, you can catch her show Saturdays at True North, the Rupa Subramanya show. Thank you so much, Rupa. Thanks, Andrew. All right. Thank you very much for that. And I should just say, I mean, there were some questions swirling today about uh, Nijal's citizenship. And I, I should just point out, or uh, Nijar rather, citizenship. And uh, one thing that I'll, I'll note on this is that there are some really, really weird things that happen. A guy who, as Rupa said there, entered uh, Canada and used fraudulent information, uh, lied on his application, uh, was uh, identified as like a co-conspirator in a, a terrorist incident by Interpol, which is quite significant, and then somehow manages to get Canadian citizenship. So how that happened, I don't know. And before you blame Justin Trudeau, it happened allegedly in March of 2015, which means Stephen Harper was the prime minister and uh, the uh, immigration minister at the time was Chris Alexander. Now, True North has reached out to uh, former minister Alexander just to get some context. I'm not saying he personally signed off on it, but it would be useful to get a sense of what the process was by which this guy in 2015 could have become a Canadian citizen. Because what's interesting here is that if he were not a Canadian citizen, there would have been tools available, tools available to uh, perhaps extradite if he had violated Indian law. And that could have been a discussion. Now, again, I am not justifying what happened here, whether India was involved or someone else. I'm not justifying that at all. I'm saying that there is a process by which these things are followed. And as Polyev pointed out, the double standard in how Justin Trudeau has dealt with China's interference versus how he's dealt with these allegations against India is quite something. In China, everything is like, oh, hush, hush, we got to keep it quiet and we don't want to rock the boat. That was the whole Canada MO. When the two Michaels were being detained, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor in China, it was don't condemn them, don't get loud, don't get boisterous. Well, it's, and anytime someone said, why are you not going harder on China? It was, oh, oh, well, we, we don't want to rock the boat. We got to, and now with India, uh, we're not just rocking the boat. We're talking about like chucking an iceberg at the boat. That's what Justin Trudeau has done with India. And it's bizarre that a country who is in every sense of the word an ally gets a worse treatment for its conduct, alleged or otherwise, than China, who is in no uncertain terms not an ally of this country, maybe not an enemy, but certainly an economic foe. So uh, that is a story we will continue to stay on top of, uh, along with others. We'll have to get Rupa back as well. Her insight on this was quite wonderful. Uh, pivoting to something entirely unrelated, though, I wanted to talk about the firearms file, because uh, you may know I am a gun owner, and I have uh, one of those evil, scary AR-15s that the Liberal government banned in May of 2020 in response to a mass shooting, well, not a mass shooting, a, a spree killing in Nova Scotia, which involved no legally owned firearms, which is a, a very key part of this distinction. So as a result, it would not have been prevented by anything that the Liberals have put into force, either through that order in council or in subsequent legislation, but never let facts get in the way of the government's narrative on this. At its core, the government said, we're going to do a two-year ban we're going to put in an am well a permanent ban, but a two-year amnesty period. And in that two years, we're going to set up a buyback program where we can buy back something that we never owned in the first place, which is your lawfully acquired and licensed 
property. And instead, the government has not managed to do it. They've spent millions of dollars despite not actually setting up this buyback program. They've extended the amnesty period. Now it is set to elapse in less than six weeks and still not a single gun has been purchased by the government. I am still sitting on uh, one of these guns that I am not legally allowed to do anything with, but look at, I can ogle it perhaps, but that's about it. And business owners, as we chronicled in our documentary, Assaulted, Justin Trudeau's War on Gun Owners, have still been sitting for now over three years on hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in inventory that they cannot sell, they can't return, and the government has given them no mechanism to uh, offload to them. So it's a bit of a problem, but we have a legal action from the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights, whose uh, head, Rod Giltaka, joins us now. Rod, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Uh, so, I mean, let's, I was going to have you on anyway to talk about this, but you've taken some action here in the last day. What's going on? Well, we have uh, prepared all the paperwork to file and um, uh, a, <laughs> sorry, to file an injunction uh, against the federal government for um, basically because they're, they're waiting. Every time this, this, uh, this amnesty deadline rolls around, the government waits till the last couple of days and it's, it stresses a lot of gun owners. People like me, um, I understand the political consequences to the Liberals for not renewing the amnesty, which I'm sure they're going to do it, uh, but for the everyday gun owner, especially elderly people, as that deadline approaches, they start to get very nervous, and some people might even turn in their guns because they're worried they'll become criminals. So the reason why we file these injunctions, even though it's not absolutely legally necessary yet, is because the government is playing this game with people. And the reason I know that is I have, a, 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 I don't know, I would say 20 to 40 people somewhere, uh, somewhere in that region that contact the CCFR each time that this amnesty was coming to an end. And these people are stressed. And it's, in my opinion, it's the way that the government makes people feel small. You know, maybe, maybe we'll renew it, maybe we won't. So we just wanted to force their hand like we did last time around to, uh, to hurry up renew it. They don't have to cause stress and and uh, and that kind of harm in people's lives. And let's just get on with it. Yeah, the, the logic of it is that the government has prohibited these guns. They've given no mechanism by which people can get rid of them. Obviously, they can't, uh, you know, just turn around and start doing mass arrests the day after because they're the ones who have failed. So I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that we know they're going to do it. But at the same time, it's the uncertainty. And I think it's the government trying to drive home this point that gun ownership is a privilege that they can take away just as easily as they grant to remind you that your rights don't exist, that your property is not your property. Well, yeah, and most people, and rightly so, aren't involved in politics. Most people aren't following this stuff like I, uh, you or I do, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it, it makes, it terrifies them. And to me, the injustice of that is ridiculous. And it just, it's, it's yet another example of how irresponsibly uh, the liberals run government. So that's, that's the reason why we're starting earlier than we did last time, uh, now six weeks to go, uh, to file that injunction to make sure that they just do the right thing and they do it soon and not put people through any more hardship than they're already experiencing in Canada. One thing that I, I would point out as well, looking at the freeze more broadly is that the government's view was that lawfully owned 
firearms like AR-15s and other semi-automatic rifles, uh, and including many that were non-restricted and used for hunting before, like Mini-14s, that those guns were a danger, even in the hands of people like you and I, who are vetted, who are licensed, who keep the guns in the cabinet. And, and it's so counterintuitive that these things that are such a public safety risk can just be allowed to sort of just exist out in the country indefinitely and keep renewing it. And don't get me wrong, I'm I'm happy they haven't done the mass confiscation, but it, it undermines their own logic and their own basis for that order and council in the first place, which is that these things had to be off the streets and out of people's homes as quickly as possible. Well, of course, and um, three and a half years later, um, violence has done nothing but increase. Uh, disorder and chaos in the streets has done nothing but increase. A year, more than a year past the handgun freeze, handguns are still being used in urban centers by the same people that were using them before. So it's, uh, again, gun control is about 98% political. There are, as, as a group, we know that there's a place for regulation of firearms, but regulation has to be reasonable and it has to be, it has to have a demonstrable positive effect on public safety. And what we've seen from the Liberals since day one in 2015 is the exact opposite. And, and I think the, the, the most atrocious part of that is they're using government power to do it. So you need to have a, a very high degree of responsibility if you're going to run a G7 nation. And we just have, we've seen exactly the opposite. We saw a very different approach given uh, by the government in the May 2020 order in council to their subsequent freeze on handguns. With the, the order in council, it was, these guns are basically bricked. You can't take them to the range. You can't shoot them. You can't buy them. You can't sell them. With handguns, it was a little bit more lax in what you'd call the grandfathering, where, okay, anyone who has one, you can still use it, but you can't buy a new one. You can't transfer it. Uh, do you think that was uh, because they view handguns in this different category? Do you think it was that they realized how much they screwed up on the first one? I, I think so. I think so. There's nothing stopping the government from uh, pulling back on some of the provisions that they had created in the May 2020 gun ban, letting people take their gun to the range. You know, I, I have to do a series of videos uh, this week with uh, a, a very popular YouTuber at the range. I've been in the range a long time. <laughs> But I would just love to take the guns that I would normally take. But now I have to take other firearms because uh, that are basically equivalent because the firearms that I can't take to the range, you know, I'm prohibited from from moving them. So they, if the if the government really wanted to um, extend an olive branch to all the people like me and you that haven't done anything to deserve to be treated this way, it would be to treat the uh, the May 2020 um, now prohibited firearms in the same way that they treated handguns. And I think your point is, is really hits home when you think, well, the majority of firearms used in criminal activity and, and firearm related violence in Canada, the overwhelming majority are handguns. But they're saying, well, you can still use your handgun as you did before, just no new ones can come in the country and you can't transfer it. So, you, I mean, those things in, in, in real life evidence that you can see with your own eyes show that all of this is a political campaign. It's not, it's not about public safety, it's about politics. It's about getting urban votes, scaring urban voters, uh, getting their votes, and then trying to mitigate the damage uh, among gun owners uh, politically. So um, I, I think I would really love to see the day uh, happen in Canada where we are making laws and policies uh, with, public, with public safety in mind rather than a political motivation. 
we know that gun owners are just a demographic minority in this country, you know, maybe 2 million gun owners, legal gun owners and a country of uh, approaching 40 million people. We also know that uh, polling uh, shows, thanks in large part to media misinformation, that gun control measures by governments can come across pretty well, which is why the work you do on education is so important. But at the same time, it would probably poll well for Justin Trudeau and uh, whoever the public safety minister is now to stand in front of a big giant warehouse full of AR-15s and hold a press conference and say, we've just taken all of these things off the street. They would love to do that. So I'm really curious why you think they haven't. Is it just general bureaucratic ineptitude that has kept this so-called buyback from materializing? Well, the buyback was never reality in the first place, right? So the Trudeau liberals look at countries like Australia or uh, or New Zealand. New Zealand is a tiny, tiny country. It's like, I think half the size of British Columbia if I, if I have my geography right. But Canada is a country that is 10 million square kilometers. So there, there are Canadians that are gun owners spread out over a massive, massive uh, land mass. And to, to create buyback opportunities in local communities across a country so big and so just so vast is, is a task beyond, certainly beyond this government <laughs> that's proven its ineptitudes in so many different ways. Um, but it's also incredibly expensive and even just the administration cost. Plus, it's a very specialized operation. It's not like they're distributing checks or something in the mail. You have to have people that are qualified uh, and legally allowed to handle firearms, uh, to make sure that they're unloaded or can't present uh, any kind of public safety uh, issue when you receive them. They have to be secured because, God forbid, a gang breaks into some, one of these uh, collection centers and ends up with, you know, 250 AR-15s um, plus all the uh, associated gear that people might inadvertently turn in. I mean, it's just it was a huge, huge task, and it also required a huge budget that could have easily spun out of control. And it would have been a boondoggle for the liberals, just like the long gun registry was. So mm -hmm. there's even political risk there. So there's a number of reasons why they haven't done it. Some of them legitimate and the other, I think, political. And I, I think in another point, if I were to add something else, Andrew, is that the because this is political in nature, the liberals always want to stretch things out so that they become a promise for the next election. They've done it twice already. So they're like, don't worry, urban voters, we are the only political party that will, you know, bring these terrible licensed gun owners to heel, but you'll have to elect us one more time. So there's a lot of reasons, I think, why you see uh, delays. There's a, a, and I think there's also a compelling reason why you don't see so much gun control coming from them right now, because towards the end, it wasn't playing well because they were banning firearms used, generally used for hunting and worse. So you know, I don't think it gave them the political boost that they thought. I thought it, I think that it was probably more damaging than they than they had imagined. So I guess uh, the real question is, what are we going to see from them in the next month or two? Well, I would also add too that because it's dragged on so long, there have been other political changes in the in the country, and you now have provincial governments that are saying we will not allow police resources in this province to be used in any gun confiscation. I mean, we've seen that in Saskatchewan and Alberta. I think Manitoba as well may have done that. So you've now got provinces that are using kind of the one trump card they have, which is you know we can't challenge the law itself, but we can say that our police officers will not be playing ball with this. 
Well, unfortunately, the OPP does not uh, reside amongst that group. They uh, it's sadly, as an Ontarian, I may have to like uh, take up residence in Alberta when this eventually does come. Yeah, they're 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 cooperating, is my understanding, and uh, in fact, it's my understanding that they're wondering, hey, what's the what's the holdup? So uh, I don't know what that means for Ontarians, but um, but yeah, that's uh, un that's an unfortunate uh, situation there. So, I, I mean, look, you want an injunction. How long a delay do you think is ideal? How long are you going to be seeking? Well, I mean... Until the be, next election? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, tw uh, 26 months is what yeah. we're after. But uh, I, I think um, probably two years would be acceptable. I mean, it's been three and a half years already. They've, they haven't bought a single firearm back, and we haven't seen e even a framework for a buyback. So I think two years would be uh, would the, be the appropriate amount of time. But again, what I would like to see from the liberals uh, would be for them to just say, OK, you know what? Don't worry about the buyback. We're going to uh, treat these firearms like we're treating handguns right now. Let the people use them. They haven't done anything. They you know, they all these firearms have been safely stored here for three and a half years and everyone's gun safes um, and let people use their firearms again. Uh, let them use them until uh, whatever conditions at the end of the life, uh, end of their lives, like they're doing with handguns, and uh, just stop punishing regular people. And uh, I think that would be probably a good policy for the Liberals to, pers uh, to pursue in the interim. And I'll just add one more thing. If you don't see that, because it was reasonable for handguns, if you don't see it, it's because they're looking for a new election promise to try to get reelected in two years. Yeah, and I, I think you're completely right about that, Rod. And I would also point out that I'm in no hurry to have this done. I, I'm totally fine with just delaying it indefinitely, except I would love to see the handgun approach, which is to say that if you believe that gun owners are the problem, which the government does, and that you know the safety requirements and the restrictions on where you can transport them aren't going to do enough to dissuade crime, it really doesn't matter whether you allow licensed gun owners to go to the range or not, like you uh, do with handguns. It, it's purely, purely punitive and uh, short-sighted and I think a reminder that this order in council was really like scrawled out on a napkin when uh, liberal ministers were watching CNN and seeing oh well yeah maybe we could do something yeah well uh, they they came up with this whole plan in two weeks after the shooting in Nova Scotia right mm -hmm. so um and then they've been backpedaling ever since you know they said that they were Justin Trudeau and and Bill Blair said that they would come up with a buyback you know at the earliest possible opportunity and uh, like we've said several times just in this interview. Yeah. Well, and, and even if it were to be launched today, to say that it could be done in the next six weeks, like this is a, like, I, I think you'd even need over a year of the buyback being in effect to round up every gun in Canada. And, and that's a low ball. Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, think, think about how many collection centers you'd really need. You know, you'd need one in, in Nunavut, right? A collection center, in Nunavut, even though you're probably going to get I don't know, 50 guns up there. You, you might need many there. in Nunavut just because of the, the size. Well, yeah. And then their other plan, if you remember, was to get Canada Post to participate and uh, basically send people boxes that they can put an AR-15 into, a functional AR-15 into, and then stick send it along your self-addressed stamped envelope yeah, and your AR-15. Stick it in the mail, man. Imagine, yeah. <laughs> imagine when a bunch of those go missing, right? And then, of course, Canada Post's concern was like, well, what are you telling us? Are you telling us that we're going to have post offices around the country where these packages are going to come in for processing to go to a central central location? And we're going to have offices that have AR-15s and 
and you know CZ 858 sitting around and our staff were the only thing between those guns and criminals like just it doesn't it doesn't yeah the Canada Post uh, processing center in Red Deer Alberta or something is going to become like better armed than a U.S. airbase so how are you going to provide security for what I don't know 800 different postal locations even the vehicles that are picking up these packages and going from A to B to the to, to wherever they're you know they're going to receive them. Well, yeah, because under the licensing, I wouldn't even be allowed to walk the gun to the post office. Yeah, it, there there's a lot of there's a lot of details there that the government couldn't care less about when they made that. They saw an opportunity and they grabbed it, and they've been living with the albatross that they slung around their own necks for three and a half years. My producer, Sean, says it adds a whole new uh, risk of going postal, which uh, when that's the level of humor we're getting on the show, it's time to wrap things up. Uh, Rod Giltaka from the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Uh, great to have your cooperation on that documentary, Assaulted, which uh, has stood the test of time, I think, because the buyback is uh, still nowhere to be seen. Businesses that we spoke to there, I ran into a couple of them at your AGM uh, back uh, this summer, and they're still dealing with the same inventory they were dealing with when I interviewed them in the spring of, of 2021. So uh, thanks so much for that and for coming on today, Rod. Thank you, Andrew. All right, that is it for today. I will give you another plug. We are going to be uh, meeting in Calgary, uh, the True North family and many of you, I hope, uh, on October 21st. That is True North Nation, our first ever live and in-person event. And I don't want to give you too many details right now, but we've been talking in our little group chat about that event all day today and planning like in intricate detail the inclusion of something that I think will just make it a complete riot. So I hope you'll come and I hope we'll be able to, uh, I don't know if we'll announce it or if we'll just make you show up. So buy a ticket and you can uh, see what the fuss is about. That is on October 21st and you can get all the details at truenorthevents.ca, truenorthevents.ca and I hope to see you there. We'll see you tomorrow at one o'clock Eastern, 11 a.m. Mountain, 10 a.m. Pacific here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.